over the years, mankind's knowledge has grown astronomically. In fact, if history's greatest intellectuals return to earth today, people like Aristotle and Augustine and Galileo and Newton, they probably couldn't pass a high school equivalency exam. The body of knowledge has increased that much. And yet, is the world a better place? Is it a better place to live? Probably not. Today, problems abound. In fact, modern scientific knowledge threatens to wipe us out. That's why our greatest need today is not more knowledge, but wisdom. We need the ability to take the facts that we know and use them for our benefit, not our detriment. You know, knowledge is always expanding, but wisdom can never be improved upon. Real wisdom stands the test of time. It doesn't become obsolete or outdated. God's wisdom is always relevant, and it's needed by every new generation. Well, that's what we have tonight, more of God's wisdom. Chapter 25 begins with an editorial comment that was added to the Proverbs about 250 years after Solomon wrote them. It reads, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Two and a half centuries after Solomon's death, his wisdom had not become tarnished, nor had it become old-fashioned. Young men were still seeking his insights. They were still copying his pearls of wisdom. Solomon's wisdom was God's wisdom, and God's wisdom is always in demand. Verse 2 tells us, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. You know, the knowledge of God is such a vast subject. God can never be fully comprehended by the mind of man. Isaiah 55 is one of my favorite chapters. It tells us that his ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than ours. It's the infinity and it's the mystery of God that add to his glory in the eyes of mortal men. And yet there are truths about God that he has made known. And thus it's the glory of man to seek out and to ascertain God's revelation. I love how St. Gregory sort of sums it up. He says, I love God because I know him. I adore God because I cannot comprehend him. A relationship with God is a mixture of the known and the unknowable. Verse 3, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. You know, it is both President Obama's blessing and his blight to be privy to classified information that his constituency lacks. And when he has to act on information only known to him, oh boy, it becomes open to everyone's criticism. If only they knew the whole story. You know, from our vantage point, the heart of the king is unsearchable. He says things that we don't see. And I'll tell you, this is also the pastor's dilemma. You know, the pastor has some behind-the-scenes information that you don't possess and that he can't tell you. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. And that's why a congregation bent on judging him can easily misinterpret his actions and can find plenty of reason to be critical. 
Wisdom, though, gives leaders the benefit of the doubt. Always remember there's more to it than what meets the eye. Well, he says, take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. He's saying that just as impurities will ruin the value of a piece of silver, an evil counselor or, or an unloyal assistant will bring down a leader. He says, do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great, for it is better that he say to you, come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Perhaps this was inspiration for Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 14. You remember the similarities there? I think the point is, is that God likes to turn the tables. He likes to send the haughty to the end of the line, and he likes to send the humble to the head of the class. Remember the advice that Jeremiah gave to his servant Baruch. I think about this a lot. In Jeremiah 45, verse 5, he said, Do you seek great things for yourself? And then he answers his own question. Do not seek them. I hope you notice there, it's not ambition that's a sin. Ambition is a good thing. God wants us to seek great things, just not for ourselves. Be ambitious for the fame of God. And for the salvation of others. In one of his plays, William Shakespeare writes, Cromwell, I charge thee, fling away ambitions. By that sin fell the angels. How can man then, the image of his maker, hope to profit by it? Well, verse 8 tells us, Do not go hastily to court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame. What if you rush to court and then lose your case? Better to work it out ahead of time. He says, debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. Always best to come to an agreement, settle things out of court if you can. Verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. I like that. The right word spoke the right way at the right time has a dynamic impact for good. That's why we should choose our words wisely. We should be strategic. Did you know words are powerful things? And so we should speak carefully. Like an earring of gold... And an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. A rebuke received is like a beautiful piece of jewelry. I mean, the one who rebukes shows the courage to love. The one who receives demonstrates the courage to listen. And when you combine the rebuke and the reception, it's a beautiful thing. He says, like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. You know, harvest time in Israel is hot. And once the crop was in the barns, often the Galilean farmers, they would retreat up to the snow-capped peaks up in Mount Hermon to cool off. 
Solomon, in fact, had a summer palace there in the shadows of Mount Hermon. You know, in 1969, the Israelis, they opened a ski resort there on the top of Mount Hermon. They're in Israel today. You didn't know there was a ski resort in, in Israel, did you? A faithful messenger or a Bible teacher, Solomon is saying, is like a blast of cold wind on a sweltering hot day. When you bring the truth, it refreshes the sender and the recipients both. He says, whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. (laughs) Boy, in light of all that God has done for us, any bragging from us about what we have done for God, about how much we're doing or giving to God, it's like hot air, that's all it is. It's like clouds without rain. Got no room to boast. Verse 15 By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. I like that. Not the breaking a bone part, but the fact that a gentle tongue is valued. You know, perseverance can be very, very persuasive. Stick to it, man. Stay at it. It can be very persuasive, especially when it's coupled with gentleness and politeness. Now, now here's the verse that I've been applying to a personal struggle that I've been enduring currently. Many of you know that we've been going back and forth with the Barrow County Commission. We're trying to get some zoning issues straightened up so we can go ahead with our our new uh, building up at Calvary 316. And we've been going back and forth and back and forth. As a matter of fact, this verse saved me this past week. Because I had all but decided I was going to storm the next commission meeting up there. And I was going to use the public comments section of the meeting to stand up and voice my objections. And kind of rail on the board of commissioners as to why they're dragging their feet and causing us such a hard time. And how they need to get on the stick and give us an answer to our questions. And I had it all laid out, man. I I was going to persevere in this thing. I was going to bombard them. I was going to stay at it. They were going to wish that I would just go away. I mean, that was my plan until I read this verse. You know, that long forbearance part I had down. But then he adds a gentle tongue to that long forbearance. And that's important. You know, you can sabotage your persistence by getting pushy, by becoming demanding. It's the combination of of perseverance and politeness that becomes powerfully persuasive. You know, in so many arenas of life, a polite perseverance is the key. I read this past week where a radish seed takes three days to grow into a radish. While a wildflower seed takes two years to germinate, then two years to sprout, then another two years to flower. So... Do you want to be an ugly radish? That can happen quick. Or do you want to be a beautiful wildflower? Then you need to persevere. Hey, two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep, and the cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croak number one? Tis fate, no helps around. Goodbye, my friend. Goodbye, cruel world. And weeping still, he drowned. But number two, made of sterner stuff, 
Dog paddled in in surprise. All the while he wiped his creamy face and he dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he said, or so I've heard he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog were dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam and not once he stopped to mutter but kicked and kicked and swam and kicked then hopped out via butter. Persevere. Verse 16. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need lest you be filled with it and vomit. That's great. In other words, don't OD on honey. You know, here's the lesson. Most everything in moderation is good. When we become gluttonous, when we go to the extreme, then we get into trouble. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. (laughs) If you always show up at your neighbor's house around dinner time, he's going to get tired of you quick. Don't wear out your welcome, he's saying. When you, when you notice your host has already brushed his teeth and changed into his pajamas, it's probably time for you to leave and go home. It's been said short-term visits make for long-term friends. Verse 18, a man who, wears, who bears false witness, literally lies against his neighbor, is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. In other words, it's eventually, confidence in an unfaithful man, in a t- he's eventually going to let you down. You know that. It's only a matter of time. It's just like a rotten tooth. You, know, you can get by with a rotten tooth for a little while, but it's only a matter of time. You're going to have to deal with the problem. It's going to be painful. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. In other words, don't try to sugarcoat someone else's sorrow. You know, you hear that a lot. You know, someone's hurting and and we come in with glib words and and sort of callous cries. Oh, cheer up, man, cheer up. What's wrong with you? No, there's a time when we need to weep with those who weep. Verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In other words, be nice to your enemy while he's trying to be hostile to you, and it's like heaping hot coals on his head. You torture your enemy, and you gain God's favor at the same time. Good deal. He says, the north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue, an angry countenance. Verse 24 It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Now, instead of fleeing to the housetop, some men choose to escape an obnoxious wife by going to their garage or their shop. Or they just stay at the office after hours. Or they like the bowling alley. Or they get a boat and take up fishing. Or they go to the golf course and play a round of golf. Hey, you know, tonight, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Here it is. To her who has ears to hear, 
Ladies, if your husband lives in the corner of the housetop or at the bowling alley or at the golf course or still at work, rather than pester him and complain to him that he's never home, you might want to ask yourself what you're doing to keep him away. Trust me, if he was appreciated and if he was respected at home, he would probably rush to be there. Now that's just telling it to you straight. A cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. Good news is like cold water on a hot summer day. I like that. You know, the word gospel means good news. And yet, why is it that we think of sharing Jesus with friends and strangers? We think of that and we think we'll be rejected. We just assume we'll be rejected, that we'll run into uh, a wall, that we'll be resisted. I mean, think about it. what thirsty person is going to turn down a glass of cold water? And yet, that's what the gospel is, he's saying. It's, it's like a cold water on a to a weary soul. It's something people are looking for. It's something people desire. They're thirsty for the gospel. Once I was, uh, I picked up a hitchhiker not far from where he, where he wanted to go, and he was in my car. He was, he was only in the car maybe five minutes, just long enough for me to explain to him the basic truths of salvation. And as he was getting out of the car, I, I, I asked him, I said, hey, how would you like to give your life to Jesus? And he said, yeah, I think I would. And, and I'm, I had this idea, you know, uh, this assumption that, you know, the gospel's just not that, doesn't just happen that way. You know, people resist it and then they work through it. And, you know, you can't possibly just be wanting a glass of cold water on a hot day. But so, so I'm thinking this is too easy. And so I think I must have left something out. And so I go back through it, you know, and, and, and then I ask him, I said, now, are you sure? Do you, do you want to give your life to Jesus? He said, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to. And I'm thinking, it just can't work this way. And so once again, I go through it, and I explain it to him, and I, and I say, now, do you really want to give your life to Jesus? And I'll never forget, the kid looks at me, and he says, well, hell yeah. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> well, enough said. Apparently, you want to give your life to Jesus. Man, I led him in a sinner's prayer, and he came to know the Lord. It was great. He was ready. Hey, remember verse 25. You know, as cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. Jesus is just what your friends are looking for. Don't forget it. A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. You know, when we stumble, when we compromise our faith, we, we muddy the water for the non-Christians that are looking at our lives. You know, hypocrisy becomes a huge turnoff to an unbelieving world. It's not the gospel they're turned off to. That's good news. They're, they're turned off to our hypocrisy. Verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey, so to seek One's own glory is not glory. It's disgraceful for someone to live for their own fame, he's saying. Verse 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. The man who lacks self-discipline, who cannot control himself, will be controlled by other people or other things. The enemy will just run wild 
over his life. Satan will ruin everything that's good and wholesome in this man. An undisciplined man has no protection against evil influences. He's like a crippled deer in the middle of a pack of bobcats. Verse, um, chapter 26. As snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Doesn't snow in the summertime. It just doesn't happen. Doesn't snow much in Georgia in July or August. Doesn't happen. And neither does a fool gain honor. He says, like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. You know, the occultist, the voodoo practitioner can curse the Christian until they're blue in the face, but the curse will not stick. It's powerless. It cannot land on a believer. God prevents it from coming to pass. God protects his children from these satanic curses. I remember that every time I go down to Haiti. Yeah, that's a very real threat. But like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. He says, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. You can't reason with a fool. They learn the hard way. They have to be punished. He says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, there's a right way and a wrong way to answer a fool. Avoid getting into it with him. Avoid the circular reasonings and the silly and the hypothetical arguments. You know, when you're arguing with the fool, don't deal with the abstract. Get practical. Stay biblical. And then you'll expose his foolishness. But if you get into it with him on his terms, then it just go round and round and round. You, you remember the Pharisees when they came to Jesus in the temple? You know, they tried to trick him with all kinds of hypothetical questions. And Jesus kept bringing them back to Scripture. He answered them with Scripture. That's how you answer a fool. Verse 6, he who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. When you send out a representative, make sure he's not a fool. You don't want to be represented by a fool. You let that happen, you shoot yourself in the foot. You undermine your own message. He says, like the legs of the lame that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Nobody will listen to a wise word that's spoken from the lips of a fool. You know, it can, it can be wise, but if it's spoken by a fool... You know, it, it's a message with no legs in, in a sense. It doesn't go anywhere. Nobody listens to it. it. It just lays limp. Like one who binds a stone in a sling is he who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. The great God, who formed everything, gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. You recognize that verse? It gets quoted in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 
person who repents and comes to Jesus and then goes back to his sinful ways later on, like the dog returning to his vomit. Verse 12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Oh boy. You know, a wise man who only sees himself through his own eyes, from his own perspective, is worse off than a foolish man. Do you have some objectivity in your life? Do you see yourself for, for who you are? I mean, warts and all. Are you honest with your, your frailties and your, and your mistakes and your weaknesses? If not, get married. <laughs> or wise up, one of the two. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be foolish and we should learn uh, to see ourselves objectively. Verse 13 the lazy man says, there is a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. I can't go to work this morning. I need to sleep in. There's no lion in the street. You're lying, man. <laughs> You're just lazy. You're just looking for excuses not to go to work. That's a lazy man. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. I think I've got a picture for this. I mean, she hears the alarm and she just rolls over like a door turning on its hinges. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. This is so funny to me. And he's got a bowl full of food, but he's hungry because he's too lazy to pick up the spoon and bring the food to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. He's so proud, he he thinks he knows more than seven men. Verse 17 is a great verse. Pay attention to this verse. It'll save you a lot of trouble. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. That's a great proverb. I'll never forget one night I was driving down Memorial Drive. It was uh, around um, about 5 o'clock. it was rush hour. And I was driving down Memorial Drive, and, I, and right in, you know, uh, in front of Provino's there on Memorial Drive, I saw this man. He, he was in the front seat with, an, with this woman, and he was beating this woman in the front seat of his car. I mean, he was just wailing on her. She was the passenger in the car. The, the, she was trying to get out. The door had swung open, and she was kind of hanging out, and he was just... You know, with his fist, you know, just pounding on this, this poor gal. Well, I pulled over and, and jumped out of the car and, and, and ran up to him and started yelling at him, you know, to stop. And before long, another group of guys, a whole group of us were out there. And we were yelling at this guy, trying to get him to stop. And finally, we, we got him distracted enough so that the girl, she could leave. She could escape. But I'll never forget what happened next. We're standing there, and we're trying to settle this guy down when all of a sudden the girl appears out of nowhere, and she just, she just wails him. She cold cocks him with her purse, and she just comes right over the back of the guys that are trying to restrain this guy, and she comes right over the back, and she just right across the face with her purse, just decks him. My, oh, my. 
What do you, we, we, tried to, we tried to give you a way of escape. Now you're coming back. And, and you got the leverage on him. And so you're punching on him and all. And it just started all over again. Thankfully, by then, the police showed up. It was crazy. But, but I think of that story when I read this verse. I'm not saying you shouldn't get involved in those kinds of squabbles, but just be careful. Because sometimes when you get into a, in between two fighting people, it's like grabbing a pit bull by the ears, man. You're going you're gonna to be in the middle of the fray. He says, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and then says, I was only joking. How many people you know fit this? You know, renaming a hurtful statement, calling it a joke, doesn't negate the damage that it does. Just because I call it a joke doesn't make it funny. Verse 20, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no talebearer or gossip, strife ceases. A charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire. So is a contentious man to kindle strife. Get rid of the gossip and you'll get rid of the problem. The gossip is like the lighter fluid. He starts the trouble. And, and trust me, he can burn down a church if you let him. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. Dunkin' Donuts, in other words. Krispy Kremes. And they go down into the inmost body. Krispy Kremes do that too. Fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross. Now here's what he's saying. Smooth talk from an evil heart is like a paper plate painted silver. In other words, it's a cover-up. You can cover up a wicked intentions with smooth, carefully chosen words he who hates disguises it with his lips you know it's like the lady who comes up oh bless your little heart you ever heard that expression bless your you know that can mean anything from I hate you to have a good day to well bless your little heart I can't stand you can mean anything. That's what he's saying here. He who hates disguises it with his lips. That's all you have to do. Will bless his heart. And lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone... We'll have it roll back on him. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Beware of the person who can't hold his tongue. Chapter 27. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. This was James's inspiration in James chapter 4. You know, James tells us not to be so sure of our plans. He writes, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. 
Don't boast about tomorrow. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. Life is full of the unexpected. I, I remember reading the story about Billy Graham. In 1962, Billy Graham woke up in a Seattle hotel room with a strange burden on his heart to pray for Marilyn Monroe and for her salvation. In fact, the next day, he had one of his aides call her agent and ask to arrange a meeting. Well, Billy Graham was told that it would take at least two weeks to set things up. And yet, two weeks later, the world was shocked by the news of Marilyn Monroe's suicide. The opportunity never came. Don't boast in tomorrow. It may not come. Marvin did the schedule. He showed me the schedule for the worship team until December. He worked out the schedule all the way to December. He said, Pastor Sandy, what do you think about the schedule? I worked it out all the way to December. I said, Marvin, I never like to work out schedules like that. Half the people could be dead by December. <laughs> I mean, it's true. This is why Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There are no guarantees that any of us will be around tomorrow. Hey, by the way, did you hear about the meeting that the devil had with his demons? I mean, too many people were becoming Christians. This had to be stopped. One, one of the demons, he suggested that they tell everybody that the Bible couldn't be trusted. The devil replied, he said, no, no, there's too much evidence to the contrary. Nobody will believe that. Another demon, he said, well, let's tell them that there's no heaven or hell. The devil said, ah, no, that'll never work. The finality of life is ingrained in the heart of every man. Finally, one of the demons spoke up and said, hey, let's just tell them there's no hurry. And it sounded good. And that's become Satan's strategy ever since. Just put it off till tomorrow. There's no hurry. The Bible warns us, none of us are promised tomorrow. He says, let another man praise you, and not your own mouth. That's good. A stranger, and not your own lips. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty. But a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel, and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Often rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Think about that one for a while. A rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. If you love someone, don't just assume that he knows. Tell that person. Verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. True friends are going to tell you the truth, even if it hurts. He or she is willing to risk your feelings in order to spare you a serious mistake. i got to admit, I don't know that I have many friends like that. But boy, those are your true friends that, that are willing to tell you the truth. The faithful are the wounds of a friend. He says, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but a hungry soul, every better, bitter thing is sweet. A man who's full is able to be selective. He might even turn down some sweets. But a hungry person eats whatever is available. You know, here's a profound spiritual lesson in this proverb. Fill up on the joy and the peace and the goodness of God, and it's easier to say no to the sweet things of this world. 
It's the empty person who becomes vulnerable to sinful temptation. The hungry person. If you're hungry, you tend to want to fill up on anything. If you're full with the love of Jesus, you can say no to the things of this world. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Remember 1 Corinthians 7. There Paul tells us to remain where we've been called. When we wander away from our marriage or from our job or from our church or from our calling, wherever God has called us, if we wander from that place, inevitably we get ourselves into trouble. He says, ointment and perfume delight the heart. And the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. Isn't that the truth? You know, even in the age of Facebook, I mean, there's something to be said for physical contact and physical proximity. It's vital in friendships. Online relationships can be fun, I admit. But they don't provide the touch that we need. You know, friends on webcams can't watch our kids when we go out. They can't hold our hand when we need them to. They can't sit there and, and, and put their arm around us. We need some nearby friends. And a friend nearby is better than a brother far away, he's saying. Verse 11. My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. Take the garment of him who is surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. If you make a loan to a suspect person, make sure you require some collateral up front. Verse 14 is a good proverb. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. (laughs) In other words, I can roll over at 5 a.m. and tell my wife how beautiful she is and how wonderful she is and how much I love her. Words that she normally really loves to hear, but at 5 a.m. she's going to bark at me and tell me to shut up. We all love words of encouragement, especially after 8 o'clock. Here it is again. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Here's another contentious woman passage. This is the fifth and counting, I think. Bitter argumentative women are a blight on the family. I'm thinking, what else can I say about this? I I read this during the Manly Revolution series back in the fall. It's been about a year or so now, and so I thought I could bring it out again. Here here are the top 10 t-shirts worn by contentious women. Top 10 t-shirts worn by contentious women. These are the t-shirts you hope you never see your wife wearing. Number 10, Don't tick me off. I'm running out of places to hide the bodies. Number nine, next mood swing, six minutes. Number eight, I hate everybody and you're next. 
Number seven, guys have feelings too, but like who cares? Number six, I used to be schizophrenic, but we're okay now. <laughs> Number five, warning, I have an attitude and I know how to use it. Number four, do not start with me. You will not win. Number three, all stressed out and no one to choke. Number two, I'm one of those bad things that happen to good people. And the number one t-shirt you really hope you never see your wife wearing, I'm out of estrogen and I have a gun. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. And what does Solomon say about the contentious woman? He says, whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. It's easier to corral a hurricane. That's why they call it hurricanes, not hemicanes. You know that. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind. You know, to restrain a contentious woman, it's easier to corral a hurricane. It's easier to hold olive oil in your hand. You ever tried to do that? Than it is to contain a woman with a chip on her shoulders. Ladies, forgive and love and submit for the sake of your marriage and your family and your own peace of mind. Lose your attitude. Verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, when fellow believers get together, when they interact, when they rub shoulders with each other, they knock off each other's rough edges, their sharp edges. They sharpen each other's convictions. They encourage and they challenge each other. You know, the world that we take in, the world we live in, it, it takes away our edge so often. It blunts us, it, it dulls us to the spiritual sensitivities that we need. That's why we need to be resharpened over and over again. And it comes through fellowship. Like iron sharpening iron. Verse 18, whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit. So he who waits on his master will be honored. Notice this, patience and loyalty toward your employer will eventually pay off. You know, so many times people get antsy and they jump ship and therefore they're never honored. They move on too quickly. He says, as in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. You know, like, like a reflection in the lake. I got a picture there. Like a reflection in the lake, the contents of the heart reflect the true person. Verse 20, hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. 1 John 2 verse 16 outlines our fallen world's value system. Here is the first and the last in John's list. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But stuck in the middle is the lust of the eyes. Now what is that? It's curiosity. It's the desire 
to sneak a peek. You just want to see for yourself. But here's the yearning that heads down the slippery slope. Sneak a peek, and before you know it, you're sucked in. You're trapped. We need to corral our eyes. We need to tame our curiosity. When, when each of my kids was born, God gave me a certain thing to pray for each of those kids. And it's been interesting how God has answered those prayers through the years. But with one of the kids, the thing that God put on my heart was, Lord, tame his curiosity. Don't, don't let his curiosity bring him down. This proverb is saying, the eyes of man are never satisfied. We've got to deal with our curiosity, our desire to see further, our desire to see for ourselves. We don't need to see for ourselves. We know what's there. We need to be able to say no to our curiosity. Verse 21, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, Yet his foolishness will not depart from him. That's pretty hard not to crack there. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. That's good advice. Make sure you know what's going on with your flocks. In other words, don't grow slack. Don't take for granted the stewardship of your resources. Balance your checkbook. Make sure your money's still where you put it. Attend to the state of your flocks. God God holds each of us accountable for good stewardship. And from time to time, we need to take an inventory of the resources that God's given us. He says, when the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of the field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. But but understand, this abundance that he's talking about would have never occurred had the person not followed up and been attentive to the state of his flocks. Chapter 28. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I like this verse. You know, the wicked man, he flees when no one pursues. He's got a guilty conscience, in other words. He's always looking over his shoulder. He's dominated by sins that he's covered up, things that he can't run away from. He squirms. He's always squirming. He's always fidgeting. Once there was a newspaper reporter who sent a letter to ten of the most prominent men in London. The letter read, quick. All is uncovered. Leave immediately. Well, within 24 hours, all 10 men packed up and evacuated the city. The wicked are always on the run. Whereas the righteous have nothing to run from. A person whose sin is forgiven, who stands in the righteousness of Jesus, the flip side of this proverb, is bold as a lion. He's brave. He's confident. He knows that he has nothing to hide. He can growl. 
Wilbur, Wilbur Wilberforce was a champion. And if you've never seen the movie about Wilbur Wilberforce, it's a great movie. He was a champion of anti-slavery laws in Great Britain. He was a member of the British Parliament. Historians say that he was very small and very frail in appearance. Once an observer described him as a shrimp who, as he was speaking, grew into a whale. A shrimp who, as he was speaking, grew into a whale. When you're on God's side, you will grow bold as a lion. Verse 2. Because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes. But a man of understanding and knowledge, right, will be prolonged. Generally speaking, sin breeds an unstable government. You know, many are its princes. It takes righteous men to hold the reins of power for extended periods, generally speaking. He says, a poor man who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain which leaves no food. Now, a poor man who oppresses the poor. This is poor on poor crime. Poor men fighting with other poor men. Verse 4. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Verse 7. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. Usury is interest. And here God is warning the company that's charging exorbitant interest rates. They're growing wealthy on the backs of poor men and women. He's warning them, God may just take away your wealth and give it back to the poor. Verse 9, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. God only promises to answer the prayers of those who walk in his righteousness. I like 1 Peter 3, verse 2. It, it holds true. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He says, whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. A poor man with wisdom seeks the advice of a rich man. Verse 12, when the righteous rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. When we sin, we respond in one of two ways. We conceal or we confess. Now, man's first tendency is to cover up. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, their first sin, what did they do? They sowed fig leaves together. The first fruit of the looms. Leaf breached. Underbrush underwear. That's what they did. They sewed it together. They, they clothed themselves. They covered up their skin. But it didn't last long. 
God called them out of the bushes, so to speak, and he, he asked them to confess. He challenged them to confess. You know, we can either conceal or confess. When David sinned with Bathsheba, you remember, he plotted this massive cover-up that included the murder of Uriah. And the Bible tells us for a whole year he concealed his sin. On the outside, David was all fine. Everything was great with the king. But on the inside, he was miserable. He was a tortured man. In fact, he prayed in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David's guilt haunted him night and day. You see, the only way for us to be free from the guilt of sin is confession. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You either conceal or you confess. Verse 14 tells us, happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. In other words, stay teachable. Stay reachable. Don't ever feel like you're above, you know, the advice of others. Like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. But he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. A man burdened with bloodshed, a man who's got blood on his hands, who's guilty of violence, will flee into a pit, but no one help him. Whoever walks blamelessly will be saved, but he who is perverse in his ways will suddenly fall. A life of sin is like walking on ice. You got a picture, yeah. A life of sin is like walking on ice. It, it's unbearable. It gets slippery. Verse 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. A faithful man. Verse 19. In other words, games all day will have poverty enough. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. God may make you rich, but your goal should be faithfulness, not riches. Matthew 6, verse 33 says it best, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. Verse 21 To show partiality is not good, because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. Oh, my. Doesn't say everybody's got a price. Doesn't take much for some people to spell out their convictions and their integrity. Because a man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterwards than he who flatters with the tongue. At least the rebuke is honest. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says it is no transgression, the same is companion to a 
Thank you. 